Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the ESPN Player College Football Podcast in association with Gridiron Magazine. I'm Simon Clancy, alongside the editor Matthew Sherry. Matt, good afternoon. How are you? We are together in the same place. The last time we did this was in Chicago. Uh, normally we are Skyping one another, so it's nice to be uh, next to you. Not too close, buddy, though. Just keep your distance. We're, we're, we're pretty close, aren't we? We I like, have to be close to this microphone. So. I, I like my own personal space. Now, there are only two teams left. National Championship game on Monday night, which will be our preview, will be in the next podcast. We have had 39 games, 78 schools playing each other in bowl season. Overall, before we dig deep into some of the best action, what, what's your what's your abiding, your overriding thought of how bowl season has gone this year? I think that that it needs it needs some changes. I mean, the, the, I think a lot of people worried when the CFP started that it would reduce the the feeling of the ball games that were left, it would reduce the prestige of them. And I think that's happened. I'm not sure that's happened because of the CFP as much as it's happened because generally the Christian McCaffreys of the world set this precedent of guys who were going to the NFL not playing in ball games. And it does reduce the quality, there's no doubt about it. Um, Ball season has had the issue for a long time now that, frankly, there are far too many games. Too many players are... um, too many teams are eligible for bowl games that shouldn't be. So many teams hovering around 500 who have had very, very average seasons and, and are still in bowl. So I think that's an issue as well. So so generally, it wasn't amazing. However, as we're going to get to, I think there are some great games that I'm sure there were a lot of people whose holiday period couldn't be consumed by college football. Some great games that you're able to watch over the coming the coming weeks and months on, on ESPN Player and, and watch back. Feels like the sight of empty stadiums and average games and that increase in player pullouts is really, it's not a great look for the NCAA, is it? I mean, and then I suppose you take the college football semi final, the playoff semi finals in terms of the just being very one sided games. And all of a sudden, that excitable talk about a playoff expansion has already kind of been kicked to the curb a little bit with people certainly on social media saying, oh, we don't need, you know, we don't need four blowouts instead of two. Where do you think we are in terms of, do you think there'll be an eradication of bowl games in terms of just getting that number down just for better games? What would you, if you were the NCAA commissioner, what would you look to do to try and just make bowl season a bit more interesting and also a bit more relevant to teams? Because as you and I discussed off mic, really, unless you're playing in the the national championship semifinals and final, the Rose Bowl really now is the only game that counts that players really, really... And, and every, every other year, that's a semi-final. Exactly, itself, so. exactly. How do you, you know, do you limit the number of games? Do you make, you don't decide the playoff top four until the bowl games have been played? Maybe you have a top 16, you know, eight teams play each other uh, for the right then to, to get into the final four, as it were, or at least there's some sort of, you know, just so there's something on every bowl game. Otherwise... You know, where do we end up? Do we thirty nine games this year? Will it be fifty six games in five years' time? And it, you know, we get every single team in in the FBS playing a bowl game at some point. I mean, where do we stop? Where do we make sure that these games are competitive? Uh, you know, and I know that there's 
a bit like the Christmas football period over here with the Premier League and uh, uh, you know and the um, Championship etc. It it feels like there's an element of tradition that stays in that perhaps we need to get past if we're ready to move forwards. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I saw the suggestion and I've never seen it before last week that that they should do that. They should decide the the CFP rankings after the ball games. I think it's a great idea and you could you know you, you essentially then could create expansion of the CFP without expansion of the CFP because you could look upon the final the final eight of of that as almost quarterfinals in themselves. So I I think that that would work and and it would also you know, if somebody, some other team performs exceptionally as well in a ball game, it would give them the chance to potentially get in a final four. So yeah, I, I personally would look at something like that. I do still think the playoff needs expanding. We'll get on to Alabama, Clemson, mainly in the next podcast. But you know, you can't make decisions for for two, three, four, five, six, seven years from now based on now. And what we're seeing now is two of the most dominant dynasties in college football history. Certainly with Alabama, but I think Clemson are right up there with them. For a team to be continuously competing with them year in, year out, when you're talking about probably the greatest dynasty in college history, is, is impressive. So I, I still think that there will... I think there will be a time when Nick Saban retires where college football will be a lot closer than it is right now again and it will need an 18 playoff. So for me, you still you still make that move, but... They do need to look at the ball games, and maybe that's an option: is, is is choosing the CFP after the ball games. It does feel like two teams have moved significantly away from the rest, though, doesn't it? It feels like Clemson and Alabama, both on the field and off it in terms of recruiting, have now made a fairly large separation ahead of everybody else. The other thing that sort of plays against um, expansion is that the two teams, well, three teams, realistically, that had an argument to get into the semi-finals: Georgia, UCF, and Ohio State. Both Georgia and UCF lost, uh, and not particularly, they weren't particularly close games. And whilst Ohio State won, they had to withhold a, a, a withstand a fairly large Washington comeback at the end. It, it, it's not a great, it's not a great look for teams, you know, who wanted to be in the play. Georgia should not be losing to Texas. Nor should Michigan to Florida. No, I mean. absolutely. And you, you, you kind of get the impression that maybe Georgia checked out a little bit because yeah. they feel like they should have been in the in the semifinals and therefore maybe they were operating at less than 100%. But for UCF, I know Mackenzie Milton was missing, but for UCF to lose against an LSU side that were missing essentially six defensive starters, including, you know, arguably the best cornerback pairing in all of college football, it, you know, Christian Fulton and Greedy Williams, it just feels a little bit like... You're not really helping yourselves in terms of the expansion, does it? No, absolutely. That was a, it was such a big game for UCF and the, and the wider college football world. We said that beforehand. And, 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 I mean, it wasn't just that they're starting two corners were out. By the time a couple of injuries had dropped, they were down to five defensive backs LSU. And that's, that's on rosters that are considerably bigger than the 53 that we see in the NFL. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, there was, n- there was never... A, after all the momentum that had been built for an expanded playoff, it felt like that just got knocked back a little bit. But the only thing I would say that, that to me supports it, I think we're about to embark upon an era in which the SEC is even better than it has been in the, in the previous five or six years. And I say that because I look at the landscape of that SEC now with 
With Saban still there, obviously, with Jimbo at Texas A&M, who had a great first season, Dan Mullen had a great first season at Florida. You know, Mississippi State are extremely talented on on both sides of the ball, and Joe Moorhead had a nice first season there as well. I, I think we're on the verge of something SEC-wise that's that's very special in terms of the depth of that conference, maybe more so. Because the SEC has been propped up a little bit by Alabama the last three or four years and, and a little bit of Auburn here and there. But I actually think that we're on the verge of something incredible in the SEC. Even even the, the Tennessee, the volunteers are, are looking like they're heading in the right direction. So, you know, to, in order to for that, even for the SEC now, they look at it and think, well, we're always going to have Alabama in, so maybe we aren't going to vote for a playoff. If they look conference-wide... They need to see that there's there's an opportunity for three SEC teams to be in a in an eight team playoff in the in the coming years. There's no doubt about it with how with how tight and competitive that's becoming. And also, you've got to, the the dominance the SEC is having in these bowl seasons has to be start being stacked up. I know Georgia lost, which was a blow to the conference overall, but I I, I just think that overall it will condense a little bit. I can see the rest of the SEC starting to at least try and bridge the gap a bit to Bama as well. So that's that's certainly my hope. That's maybe more hope than expectation, but I do think there is a, an opportunity there with the coaching. One quick question, because we've been looking uh, off mic again at, at our gridiron trip for next year and where we're going to go to, and we were looking at Alabama and Clemson's schedules. Alabama have as, uh, about as pat schedule as is humanly possible in 2019. Are teams like Bama and Clemson as good as they are on field, and clearly they are, but are they helped by the fact that they will enter next season probably as number one and number two? You know, Clemson are going to play Charlotte and Wofford. I mean, I think probably their only game against a ranked team will be Texas A&M, maybe Boston College. Um, but beyond that, the ACC schedule is very easy, and that's not Clemson's fault, but their non-conference schedule is very easy. And Alabama's is, a, is the similarly the cupcakiest of cupcake schedules. Like I said, they'll enter the season ranked one and two pretty much. It's very hard to knock them off of that one and two pedestal until you get to the playoff by the very nature of the fact that they're almost certain not to lose any of those games. Do you yeah. see what I'm trying to say? Whereas, yeah. you know, you look at T, and again, that's not their fault with their conferences, but certainly, surely you feel like non conference play, you know, the, the, the toughest game that Clemson will play, apart from a national championship, will be Notre Dame in South Bend in, in 2020. And that shouldn't be right, should it? No, it shouldn't. Certainly not with Clemson. I mean, Alabama can have a little bit more of an argument for me because of the strength of the SEC moving forward. So I think that their strength of schedule in coming years it'll be it'll be better than it has been in the past because I, I do think the SEC overall has been down in the last four or five seasons, but is on the way back because of the the, the last cycle of coaching hires. Um, Clemson's is is just unacceptable for me, and I mean you look at Clemson's record this year. We went into that Notre Dame game having no real idea how good an unbeaten team was, and that's ridiculous. And they can't control the element of it in terms of in terms of their own conference, which is admittedly further down at, at blue blood programs like Florida State than Miami than, than anyone would have anticipated. But it does need to improve the the non the non conference games. I mean, Texas A and M at the time when they even scheduled that home and home. It's not like Texas A&M were a... I'm trying to think, would they have been... Would Manziel have still been playing? So maybe Texas A&M, you give them credit for that because they've scheduled it. And and Notre Dame, certainly, I assume, is a home-and-home home as well for the next, for the two years after that. So there is one game where they're doing it. But I think collectively the strength of the ACC means you would like to see Clemson in in some more competitive games because 
let's be honest, a lot of the a lot of the games that they're playing in their own conference at the minute are like are like playing an FCS team. Yeah. Let's jump into the games then in terms of you know how they played out. Let, we may as well go chronologically and obviously we won't jump in every game. Um, but give you an idea of some of the games perhaps to catch up on on, on ESPN Player if that's that's what you'd like to do. Let, let's start with Jordan Love at Utah State. Uh, people talk next next year about the quarterback draft for 2020 with Tua Tungabailoa and Jake Fromm and Justin Herbert now obviously of Oregon staying for his uh, for his senior season. Jordan Love is another quarterback who's very much under the radar but but looks like a first round prospect. Not seen very much because he plays for Utah State, uh, you know, on the periphery of the the top twenty five. Also, obviously, play on the West Coast, therefore, very rarely get seen in a in a time unless you're a, you know, unless you can't sleep, then you're never going to see him play. Um, he put on a superb performance: three hundred and fifty nine yards, four touchdowns uh, against North Texas to kick off bowl season. He is a uh, he's a very interesting quarterback, isn't he? A very interesting prospect and one that people will start to need to get to to know heading into next season. Yeah, absolutely, and, and what the one that I've just not seen any talk about because everybody next year is looking ahead to Herbert to Tua. Yeah, you're you're probably one of the only guys who've who've put him in that mix, and and certainly I've seen that seen the ball performance. Haven't been like the rest of the world and not really followed his progress over over time. And I thought he was tremendously impressive, and and since then have. That this is where the, the ESPN player service is good at, as ball season comes around for those who can't access all 22 teams. If you do want to just check out some of these draft prospects, particularly positions like quarterback where it's easy to see kind of what's going on. Maybe that doesn't apply with like defensive backs and stuff. But he's, he was hugely impressive and, and a guy who, I think you're right, Si, I think he very much now fits into the mix of how outstanding that quarterback class is going to be next year. It feels like a lot of the best bowl games came earlier in the month with smaller teams. Certainly the the, the Rose Bowl, the Sugar Bowl, the Fiesta Bowl, the, the kind of the classic bowl games, as it were, the games that you got closer towards January really didn't live up to expectations. But actually, you know, if you go back through the player and you look at things like the Carmelia Bowl between Eastern Michigan and Georgia Southern and the, the Bahamas Bowl between FIU and Toledo, very close games. You know, the, the Bahamas Bowl... 35-32 as won by a backup quarterback who'd thrown just 68 passes in four seasons a, a redshirt junior um, who then proceeded to make three huge plays on that final drive uh, which was capped off by an 18-yard touchdown run by a, a, a tailback who'd been injured in a drive-by shooting in September so just a, you know a great story in the Carmelia Bowl you know Georgia Southern drive down the field trading by one to set up a, a last second 40-yard field goal. and there you've got the You've got the head coach, Chad Lunsford, doing his ESPN interview in tears with his family bawling their eyes out alongside him. It's those things that make... And, and that's, that's what makes it special. But also that's what makes... You know, you can see that there's a passion there. That, the, that yeah. This does mean something for those smaller teams. It doesn't mean as much for Georgia. You know, Jake Fromm is going to be disappointed that he didn't win his game. But it's not the be-all. Not I, I think, in a way, losing the SEC championship game was a far and playing the SEC championship game was a far, far bigger thing yeah. for Georgia than any bowl game against Texas ever could be. And that was unless it was for a national the, title. The absolutely, wasn't it? absolutely. I mean, I, I, a couple of ones that stuck out to me early was Army's performance against yeah. Houston. Was, was I think that was the best good. performance of the month. Actually. Yeah, it I mean, was. I mean, Houston without their quarterback, who really is a Heisman candidate next year and Derek, Derek King, King isn't yeah. he? A guy who actually I think we will probably yeah. interview at some point because we've been offered the chance to in the past. Um, so it wasn't a Houston team but to put up 70, I mean... 14 We, 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 we outlined that as a game before ball season where we thought a team who'd had an incredible season mm. could really finish it with a bang. We didn't expect 70-14. to 14. I mean... 
And that's an eleven. They're win. on the Michigan schedule next year. That's an eleven win season now for the for, for the Black Knights. That's twenty they're twenty one and five over the last two seasons. And they're gonna have a chance, like you say, to show their metal early on next season in a game against Michigan in the big house on yeah. September the seventh. And it's one of those early season games that if you're not 100% switched on, yeah. then you're going to be really taken to task, especially for a Michigan defense that's going to be missing Rashan Gary, Devin Bush, and Chase Winovich, to name but three. That's the sort of game where if you're not 100% ready against a team that will run the ball and run the ball and run the ball and run the ball, if you're not ready for that game, you could be taken out big yeah. time. And, you know, it, it will be early enough for Michigan to bounce back and still be in the national title hunt, but it's the sort of game that you don't yeah. want to see early on your schedule. But kudos to Michigan for for scheduling that. I mean, yeah, I, you know, because Army, I'd like as much as you can talk about these games against um, you want teams against real power pros. I mean, Michigan play Notre Dame next year as well at home in the reverse of last year's game. But Army are absolutely the kind of team who you really don't want to play. Like the triple no. the triple option teams are not teams that you would ever think. You, you know that there's an inherent risk to scheduling them. So, yeah, I think fair enough. And, and actually, something that if they go on and win that game and they're in the mix next year, they should be given credit for that. You don't, don't forget, Army almost beat Oklahoma this season, yeah. didn't they? I mean, they were, that was overtime, it went to overtime. And there was a, you know, even in the fourth quarter, Army were ahead the whole time. Oklahoma, as bad as their defence is, and it is, could not get off the field, could not shut down. I think Army ran for about 336 yards in that game. And it, there was a fourth, you know, a fourth down touchdown pass from Kyler Murray just to send it to overtime. Yeah. So, so you know, Army are no mugs when it comes down to it. I, I think the best game, probably, and again, another one for ESPN player, not one of the games that you'd necessarily think the best game, certainly for me, was the Texas Bowl between oh, Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt and yeah. Baylor, which was a 45-38 barn burner, two, 1,241 yards of offense. Uh, Kishon Vaughan, I think, probably the best performance of of any player throughout throughout the bowl uh, calendar month. 243 yards on 13 carries, including three runs of 65-plus yards. Just a great game, just a great offensive game of football. But talk a little bit about Matt Rule, because Matt Rule's a guy that I interviewed, certainly for the magazine before the start of the season, came in after the end of that infamous Art Briles era and the you know the sexual um, misconduct scandal and the you know the rape scandal really that surrounded Baylor and Baylor football certainly and Art Briles is not his role in it because that would be the wrong word but certainly you know his overseeing of everything that happened beneath him as the leader of that that organization Matt Rule has done a, a quite phenomenal job of turning that team around both on the field and off the field uh, in, in two seasons hasn't he he has and he was a guy I mean this is a guy who I think came fairly close to getting the Indianapolis Colts job, Colts yeah. job last year, having overseen a one and nine, one and ten season, which I think shows the esteem he's held in initially, without even contemplating what he's done, what he's done this year, and what he's done this year is is turned that into kind of a a winning season with a really good ball win now, and you see the arrow massively pointing up for Berlin. What what I like about Rule and what we've alluded to when we've chatted about him in the past is. This is a guy who has built programs by by utilizing his diverse skill set. Like I love Lincoln Riley, but you cannot tell me that he couldn't have put a better defense on the field over the last two years in the in the college football playoff. And frankly, the fact that he hasn't has potentially cost them two national championships. Now I see the argument completely that the only reason that competing for those national championships is because of his offense. It's true. He's turned two quarterbacks into Heisman winners in back-to-back years, which in itself is an absolutely astonishing feat when you consider the different guys. But 
If and I was a, looking, and there's a big bat as well. Well, I'll see what your butt is. But, <laughs> uh, but for me, he you're the head coach of the team, so the defense you're not the is head coach much, of the offense. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. The defense is as much your responsibility as the offense is, regardless of whether you're an offensive coach. And for me, if I was an NFL team or anybody looking at a college coach, I would hold that against him until I see Oklahoma field a defense that is good enough to it doesn't this is the thing their, their offense is so good that the defense doesn't even even have to be that good to win it's it needs them. to be just a decent reasonable level you can't tell me that in college football you could not put together a decent cover two zone defense that would be good enough to hold up and play bend but bro, don't break defense when you've got that good an offense and that is complimentary football like you look at great teams when they have a great offense their defense will be a turnover heavy team that that, that can complement that offense when it's the other way around you need a more dominant defense Matt Rule is the kind of guy who can look at an overall program and implement those things and put them in place because he's coached offense, he's coached defense. I mean, if you look back at the guy's track record, he has basically coached every position group that you can think of at some time in his career. And for me, that is why he's turned Baylor around so quickly because, I mean, Matt Rule is dealing with a much smaller talent pool in Baylor than Oklahoma are. So I, I think Rule. I think coach of the year, Matt Rule, to be honest, this year. I think an astonishing, astonishing achievement. And this, this incredible ball game put a, put, a, put a real ball on that for me. What I think is quite interesting about them, if you look, if they continue this development, their 2019 schedule, I mean, they have, they have an opportunity to be unbeaten by the time they get to Oklahoma at home on November the 16th and then at Texas at home on November the 23rd. I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility yeah. for a Matt Rule team to be unbeaten at that point. And they're going to play an Oklahoma team without Kyler Murray, without Hollywood Brown, you know, without that, you know, at least two members of that best offensive line in college football. There's an opportunity there for Baylor to vault themselves way back in to a national picture. You know, Joe Banner, the former Eagles and Browns uh, vice president, president and CEO for sort of 20 years, tweeted a couple of days ago, for those who've been asking, I identified Matt Rule as my top rated NFL head coach candidate, will be in the NFL very soon, has all the qualities to be very successful. That will be a very interesting one to watch. You're listening to the ESPN Player College Football Podcast with myself, Simon Clancy, Gridiron Editor, Matthew Sherry. The worst bowl game, Matt, I think was probably the cheese, uh, was probably the, um, <laughs> the cheese it bowl. Between, How many interceptions? There were nine, nine. interceptions. That's nine. Uh, I think if I was the, uh, if I was the BBC uh, score announcer on the um on the uh football pools i think they'd have to put it in brackets afterwards just to make sure that you realize it was nine nine interceptions finished 10-7 after a walk-off field goal in a, i mean they couldn't even score a touchdown in overtime that's how bad it was perhaps the most comical moment was the sports information director of tcu falling over on the sideline interfering with an official on a on an interception return and there was they, they were penalized and had the ball was taken back to the spot of the foul, the SID had slipped over in the you know on the. I mean, it was just ludicrous, but kind of highlighted exactly where you know what a just a calamity it was. We talked about the best team performance, the worst team performance. I think Matt, for me, and I wrote about it in Clancy on campus. But for me, there were two teams, and I think one sort of semi worst, um, and then one that was just absolutely stand out the worst. I think the semi worst was the University of Miami, who started off eighth ranked in the nation lost a second game of the season to LSU and sort of began generally to fall apart. Massive issues at quarterback, could never settle on a quarterback. Um, and, and then they lose 35-3 to Wisconsin. And then uh, Mark Richt 
essentially retire. Yeah. Stands down Manny Diaz, who'd who'd taken the job at, at Temple as head coach, all of a sudden reverses field. He goes back and uh, as the University of Miami's new head coach, they have to pay Temple $4 million to do so. Just a calamitous season and a calamitous performance by a team that you just expected more of. Yeah, I mean, I, I never thought... I, I thought they were massively overranked at the start of the season. I said that, but I never I never saw this coming, I must admit. Not, not, not even close to it. And, and you know, Mark Richter's done a lot for that programme in, in a short period of time, mainly by attracting huge investment back into the programme, off the field. He's been instrumental in, in facilities getting built and things like that by, you know, Matt, he's known as the nicest man in college football, basically. So he's got, a, he's got a great reputation, but this was a sad end for him. I mean, dreadful. And, and also, as much good as he's done, there has to be some people at Miami who are livid at the way he's handled this end. Because mm. what... what you don't realise how much that cost them in recruiting at the end of the season. The well, you've had guys decommitting the, the, and all sorts it, it, of things. There was a, there was a four-star linebacker who Michigan slipped completely unexpected, unexpectedly at the last minute. They've had wide receivers leaving. Manny Diaz was their best recruiter as yeah. well as their defensive coordinator. So had, had he announced this sooner, one Diaz wouldn't have been in a position where he's essentially had to leave a job after about two days because his dream job's come up that really he could have easily been aware that was coming up if Mark Richter had told him he was planning to retire. And and two, a lot of these guys who've decommitted would be with the programme. So now Diaz starts with with a real problem because this recruiting class they've had has been dreadful. I mean, there's still a chance to try and improve it slightly, although most of the guys have signed early this year. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not a good situation at all for the year. And, and really, had we done this podcast at the end of last year, I think we'd have picked out the University of Miami as... As a team who was on the up, I mean, we'll probably discuss some teams who, are, who we think ball season cap good years and we think the arrows pointing up in a bit. But one of them last year would have been Miami and now actually the arrows pointing firmly down again. And they, they're, they're going to lose three players at least to the NFL draft. Early declarations from defensive end Joe Jackson, who said he signed with an agent, to running back Travis Homer. Um, it's just, uh, it's not a good situation for, for Diaz to be in. You know, he's got an awful lot of work to do to get this fairly storied franchise that we thought were back, back in the in the limelight, hasn't he? Yeah, totally. And and it's not, I mean, the U haven't been that relevant now for a couple of couple of decades, really, since the, since the mid, mid, mid to late 90s, maybe. Um and we really thought it was coming back. They're living I mean, on reputation, aren't they? Yeah, reputation. absolutely. Yeah, I mean, what Rick did last year actually was the was what we thought was the start of a return to prominence. So you're back to square one with a guy. I mean, Mark Rick came into Miami as as much as he hadn't won the big one at Georgia. He'd had a very good record at Georgia. He'd run a, a blue blood program before. I mean, Diaz, as much as he was great as defensive coordinator, great in recruiting, completely unproven as well. Let's look at some of the best performances before we get into the sort of the late bowl games. There were a number that stood out for me. Jartavius Whitlow uh, in the beat. Oh, actually, before we even get there, let's talk about the other team that was just horrendous, and that was Purdue. Yeah. I mean, Purdue lost to Auburn about as badly as any team can can lose to, to anybody. It finished 63-14 in the Music City Bowl. Auburn scored on their first eight first seven possessions they would have scored on their eighth possession I'm sure but it was seven seconds before the end of the half so they took a knee <laughs> it was 56-7 at half time it was 48-7 
midway through the, the second quarter. I mean, it's a st- Jarrett Stidham had 335 yards passing and four touchdowns at half time. It's astonishing that a Purdue side that beat Ohio State by 29 can lose by what? I mean, my math is terrible, but what's that? 41 points to, to Auburn in a bowl game? I mean, that's, emba- that's embarrassing for Jeff Brom. Embarrassing. That's 49. 49, yeah. yeah. My math is not uh, that bad. Um, it's astonishingly bad. And, and really summed up a, a dreadful bowl season for the Big Ten. I mm. mean, it's, you know, the, the, the pushing for... For an expanded playoff, because Ohio State haven't been in the last couple of years, but frankly, they need to be sorted out. That I, I remember at the start of the season saying that I thought that the SEC had the the best top end, but that the Big Ten was the deepest conference, and this suggests that it absolutely isn't. I mean, Auburn were not even that good an SEC team this year, and we know they've always got inherent advantages in recruiting in in Alabama and everything else. But this was shocking. I mean, love to add that a penny for Jeff Brom's thoughts haven't. Having decided to stay there instead of going to Louisville, where he's essentially was a town god, um, it wasn't good at all. I mean, dreadful, and and a real a further black mark on Ohio State. Because I must admit, as much as I hate to say it, I watched the, these ball games, ultimately thinking that Ohio State could have been in much more interesting semi-finals than the two teams in there. And the only reason they weren't was because of their ludicrous performance in this game against Purdue so yeah just a bad game all round for the conference I think but yeah not good in terms of individual performances let's start in that game then Jartavius Whitlow first three touches of the ball scored three touchdowns I mean quite frankly it feels like you and I could have scored touchdowns if we'd have got the ball uh, given how bad Purdue's defence was also I've just remembered you made me a cup of coffee and I haven't touched it in about half an hour which is embarrassing because it's now probably cold I'll make another one thanks buddy Um, Daniel Jones um, Duke's quarterback yeah has declared for the draft, uh, is a very interesting prospect. I know certainly from talking to some people and seeing people talk about him that he is considered a first round, potential first round pick in a weak draft. Now he threw for uh, 423 yards, five touchdowns, two picks in the uh, in the demolition of Temple in their bowl game. Um, what do you think of Jones? Because to me, he reminds me of Ryan Tannehill. More football intelligence, less arm strength. He even wears 17. He's very mobile. He doesn't have an arm. He doesn't have a big arm at all. And not only does he lack a big arm, he also lacks velocity yeah. to make those throws. The, the sort of NFL throws that you, you see across, you know, from one side of the field to the other, back shoulder from the opposite hash marks. That, for me, would be a concern. I mean, he he looks to have a lot of tools that you can work with. One wonders how much of a stretch it will be. He's going to have to fit into a very specific offence to be successful, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, he's someone I've looked at. I think for the Patriots, he'd be an option because that offence isn't necessarily predicated on arm strength. The offence is changing depending on year to year and with, with things. But as a general rule, I think he would fit somewhere like that. I generally think arm strength is monstrously overrated. However... There is a huge caveat to that, which is if you don't have the requisite velocity, which I worry Jones doesn't, to make the tight window throws that you mention, it does concern me. What I like with with him, he throws with anticipation as well as as well as I can remember in recent times a guy coming out and certainly I mean obviously there are guys like you know when James Winston came out you could see everything you could see all the tools there 
certainly for one of these guys who at the minute is projected low first round, early second round, he does a better job of that, and that's usually what I look for. My my question would be, is would a team get him and think that they can spend 18 months getting that velocity up? I have to think there's a training programme in the modern world of sports science. In the past, arm strength's always been a thing that people measure as it is what it is. In this day and age, is there a way to improve that? I think there probably is, but I'd be interested to, to, to know your thoughts on The that. other thing is, and I think, I, I think you're right to a degree, although I'm, I wonder just how much velocity you can add to somebody when you just don't have it. The other thing is, how much better can he be? You know, he comes out of that David Cutcliffe system. You know, where's his, you know, where's his ceiling? And also, for you know, is he going to be a first-round pick in an in a good quarterback would he be in a first round pick last year for example no. I don't think he would have been on no. any would he be a first round pick in two years time I don't no, think he no, would be no either chance. so that would concern me the other thing that concerns me then is if you're a t- if you're a quarterback needy team is it beneficial to reach for a guy that you're not 100% sure about because for me I don't think it is I, I think, it's a difficult one but you know I think there's value in teams like again the Patriots who need someone there is value in taking somebody like this in the middle of the second round because ultimately, once you get to the middle of the second round, it's not like those picks work out all the time anyway. So for somebody like this where you can see you know, some of the rare traits, I mean, throwing with anticipation is as rare as it gets for me in college football, certainly in a... It, it, Especially in those wide open spread offences. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So, so yeah, I think there's a value in that. I definitely wouldn't take him in the top 20 because I, I would have enough concerns about the arm strength. It's going to be interesting to see. This is a guy where pro days and that are so important because you know they're going to judge the arm strength based on what they see when they stood 10 yards away from him. The guys who can look at it and really see whether it's it's good enough, sometimes difficult to tell on telly. Um, so, yeah, I think I think a lot of this postseason stuff is more important than, for him than... The most players, but the one thing I would say, he's chosen the right year to come out. Yeah, definitely. In the way that Justin Herbert potentially hasn't, like. He Although I like, has, I like the fact that Herbert has challenged himself, yeah, himself in that. Yeah, absolutely, he? absolutely. I wonder whether or not uh, I, I know Jim Nagy, the director of um, of the Senior Bowl, has talked about quarterbacks going to the Senior Bowl, and obviously now you don't need to be a senior; you can be a redshirt junior. I suspect Jones will; they'll, they'll try and get Jones there. I know they're taking eight quarterbacks. It looks like Trace McSorley won't play because of the potential injury to his foot. I know they were holding a spot open, ideally for Herbert, um, and obviously Herbert has gone back. There's talk about Eastern Stick of North Dakota being that extra guy. I wonder whether Jones will will fit in there. That certainly looks like a, an option, and, and I know that college coaches would definitely like to get a, a handle on him at, at that point. A couple of other guys, if you're looking at ESPN player and looking for games and uh, things to look back on, Travion Williams' Williams's performance for uh, Texas A&M over NC State in the uh, in the Gator Bowl is very interesting. Williams has declared for the draft. He ran for 236 yards and three touchdowns, and then. The SEC Defensive Player of the Year, arguably my favourite player in college football, certainly defensively, Josh Allen of Kentucky, had three sacks and a block field goal against Penn State in that game against... There's, there's uh, a number two on my best performance. McSorley. I mean, his, he has incredible talent. And he came out after the game and said, you know, uh, I don't see how anybody but Josh Allen could be the first pick in the draft. He has some legitimate talent. He's 6'5", he's 260 pounds, he can go forwards, he can go backwards... He's a machine and just so much fun to watch. Seems like a great kid as well. Um, he's going to be a top three, top five pick at worst in April's draft, isn't he? And it, it was just a stunning sort of exclamation mark on the end of his career in Kentucky. I'd always been uh, Nick Borsa will be the first overall pick 
thinker. Um, if I was a team looking at it, right, I think the talent level between Borsa and Allen is non-existent. Yeah. I mean, it's, I would look at Nick Borsa's decision to essentially give up on a season with a potential national championship with Ohio State. This is very different to not playing in the peach ball or whatever ball you want to say, and any non-CFP ball, what Borsa decided to do. I mean, I read a report from Albert Bree and Mr. Ohio State that he's only just out of rehab. I don't believe that, based on the prognosis of when he first got injured. He could come back and play at the end of last season. He potentially could have been playing in that Purdue game. You know, I think that if I was an NFL evaluator, I would look hard at a guy who essentially played in a meaningless ball game as well because of the camaraderie he built with his team. And Kentucky... What a season. I mean, to go and beat a, a blue blood programme in Penn State at the end of the year, and that isn't a game for Penn State that I think, you know, Michigan, I almost give them a bit of a pass because, one, they had a lot of players out, but also mainly because they'd been in the national championship race all year, hadn't, it had fallen apart at the last minute. It's difficult to get yourself back up again after that when you've got one goal. Penn State, their season, in terms of the bigger picture, had been over for, for weeks, but then they'd reeled off five straight wins at the end of the year. They had a transformative quarterback in his final game. You know, Penn State had every reason to really want to win that game against Kentucky. Kentucky did the same, and Kentucky ran out very, very impressive winners. I mean, I, I was stunned in this game. I thought Penn State would win. And, and the game owed a lot to Josh Allen. And if I was an NFL evaluator, I would remember that difference between Bosa and Allen, potentially laying that way. Because, you know, that's the kind of guy you want in the building at the end of the day. I'm not saying that Nick Bosa has any other real character concerns, but you wonder whether Nick Bosa is going to play for Nick Bosa a little bit more than, than the team in the way that Josh Allen would. The other, the other thing that separates Allen potentially from the rest of his competition, is that Allen will be at the Senior Bowl. He will be there for all to see, for scouts, for head coaches, for general managers to see, to get their hands on, to talk to, to watch in those all important. I mean, there's nothing more important in the draft schedule than those Senior Bowl practices where you can see guys going one-on-one against one another, mano-a-mano, the best against the best. That's where things really matter. That's where you can really get a handle on kids. Nick Bosa will not be there, you know, the two coaching staffs that coach the senior bowl are going to be picking think, both in the top four. The Raiders, isn't it? Yeah, both are picking. It only takes one of those. Yeah. T- you know, it only takes Oakland to fall, or the 49ers. It only takes either of those teams to fall in love with him. Both, and both you know, desperately need head rushes. Absolutely, well. absolutely. So it'll be fascinating to see. It doesn't. I don't think it's cut and dry that Nick Bozer is the number one overall pick. No. You know, and you could see a team trading up for Dwayne Haskins. You know, depending yeah. on how that plays out as well. But I think Josh Allen is absolutely in the mix for that. For that number one overall pick, let's let's go to the let's skip to the the rest and let's just rattle through very quickly. Obviously, we talked about Kentucky, Penn State, Michigan lost to uh, to to Florida, really thrashed, I suppose, very disappointingly, missing Rashan Gary and Karan Higdon uh, in that Peach the Bowl. The big worry for Michigan would be, I said before the game, the only thing I wanted to see was a sign that the offense was going to be more diverse and maybe some lessons of being learned. I saw nothing of that. In fact, it was the opposite. Yeah, Iowa beat Mississippi State in the Outback Bowl. Um, not the greatest of games. Sort of disappointing finish to Nick Fitzgerald's career. Um, Noah Fant sat out the sat out the game, which again was a shame. New Year's Day games all close on the scoreboard without ever really being close in reality, were they? UCF jumped out to this big fourteen to three lead against LSU. Like I said, missing half of their defensive starters. Devin White played, but the two cornerbacks. Uh, Missed the game, unfortunately. But LSU just essentially behind 
just some solid, solid offensive play, building drives with uh, your guy from Ohio State um, at quarterback, just kind of getting the job done yeah. consistent. But also UCF didn't help themselves, did they? They, you know, Not only could they not get off the field on third down, they missed a number of big opportunities yeah. to get off the field. Missed tackles on critical third down plays where they could have got off the field and a guy slips out of one or two tackles and either makes a first down or in some a couple of occasions actually went for a touchdown. Um, and then ridiculous personal foul penalties that yeah. were are so unnecessary. I mean, frankly, you, I've always liked the UCF story. I, I, I dislike them a lot more after this game. I, I, I was thinking, thought, they, thought they were a disgrace. I was thinking exactly the same thing. I was thinking that America has so much love for you, you know, comparatively speaking, and yet you've done an awful lot in that 60 minutes to make lots of people just think you were just a bunch of cheap shot artists, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I could can't immediately think of a debut performance individually from a team. I mean, there was, a, there was an early hit which actually didn't bother me. The Joe Burrow, on the on the pick six, the 93-yard interception return, Joe Burrow gets sort of taken out by... Yeah, that's fine. That, that was fine because, you know... It's just block, isn't it? It's a block. To absolutely, and it happens all the time. It, 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 you know, chasing quarterbacks after an interception is a thing. It's, you know, until it's outlawed, then it's going to continue to be a thing. And I thought it was a fair hit. He didn't hit with the crown of his helmet. He didn't hit into the helmet. I thought it was a fair and legitimate, you know, it was a big shot, but I thought it was fair. But I just thought generally cheap shotting, hits out of bounds, pushes out of bounds, just so unnecessary. It didn't need to be that way. And I know you've got a chip on your shoulder because, you know, you feel like you should be in the playoff. And yes, you were probably job, but you weren't job by LSU. There's no way that you should have gone out and, and performed in in that manner. And really, you know, Joe Burrow led that team brilliantly. I thought Burrow was really good. Yeah, he was excellent. Um, I'm I'm really interested to see what the what the future holds for Burrow. I think he can be a little bit better than a game manager. Um, and certainly, I mean, he made some incredible throws in yeah. this game. Um, I'm really interested to see him next season. And then the Rose Bowl was the final one, really, wasn't it? Dwayne Haskins led Ohio State to that 28-23 win. And, and they moved out fairly early in that game. And really, you know, Washington brought it close at the end. And Jake Browning had the ball at midfield until they ran out of downs, essentially four incompletions. But it wasn't ever really... You never really thought, like, Ohio State were going to lose it. The, the one thing that concerned me, I suppose, about Dwayne Haskins, uh, you know, and we've repeatedly spoken on this podcast that we are big fans of his... I think he went three for seven in the fourth quarter when Browning and, uh, and the Huskies were mounting that comeback. That for me is discipline. And I think if you're an he NFL, can't sc- handle pressure. At all. If you're an NFL scout, I think that's the one thing that you are concerned about. I don't think you've already seen him enough throughout the season. You don't need to see him in that game. What you need to see is a continually how he deals with pressure, but b in those big moments. What and he couldn't salt the game away. And you take two a tongue of Iowa when Kyler Murray was making that comeback for Oklahoma in the semifinal. Tungavalo was 8 of 8 for 88 yards and two touchdowns. Haskins was 3 of 7 for 23 yards. And I think that's a huge difference in terms of just dealing with the very, very biggest of moments. I know Ohio State won some big games. TCU game at the time was a big game. Obviously, the win over Michigan. But the win over Michigan was never close. You know, it wasn't like he had to forge out. I suppose the only really close game was that Maryland game where he sort of took the team a little bit on it. But it's Maryland. It's yeah. not, you know, you're it not playing Alabama. It should never game. have been that game in the first place. That for me would be a concern if I'm an NFL scout thinking you had so many opportunities. You know, first and foremost, why aren't Ohio State just running the ball at that point? You don't need to throw it seven times. But the fact that he couldn't get the job done, that I think would be a would be a bit of a concern. But I, I worry about Haskins. I worry that he will get selected very early in this draft and I think if he's behind a bad offensive line it'll be David Carr part two. I really do. I, I, 
he falls under pressure worse than any big time college quarterback I've seen in a few years, and and that's both physical pressure and metaphorical pressure. In that, when those two things combine, I, I really think he struggles. I, I, and 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 frankly, it's understandable. The guy has barely played it. He's played about thirteen games of college football. Yeah. If ever there was an argument, I'd love to to get hold of him almost and say, look. This is a difficult decision because you probably would be... I think he'll be the first overall pick this year. I don't think he would be next year. I certainly wouldn't start him as a rookie. But I think he would be a top 10 to 15, top ten pick next year still. I would get hold of him and say, look, this is, a, this is a much tougher decision than you think. You've got great coaching at Ohio State. You could definitely do with another year. I think any team that drafts him needs to be prepared to sit him for at least 12 months. I mean, the arm talent's incredible. His arm talent is absolutely incredible, um, but he needs to he needs to be in more big moments for me, and needs to prove that he can do something in them. And I guess the worry would be if he it, it's a big risk. I mean, I can understand it. His is a decision that I would least like to have because he's choosing really. Do you think he'd be the first overall pick? I suspect he'll be a top, top three. I think he'll be the first quarterback, and I. Oh, I think I think, it's I think that, that ultimately means he'll be the first overall pick. I suppose the flip side to being the first quarterback is what happens with Kyler Murray because it only takes one team to fall in love with yeah. him. You know, and I think Murray is could be the spark plug that some team could be looking for. A Jacksonville, a Miami, one of those teams yeah. that could just fall in love with him, despite the height. And I think height issues now. Slightly overblown when you look at the success of Russell Wilson and Drew Brees and and Baker Mayfield. Brees is not now the only outlier. There are now you know an offensive spread offensive systems as the NFL is moving more and more to are making height less and less of an issue in terms of you know it's about pocket manipulation and those sorts of things. Um, I think throwing with anticipation is one of the things that that Murray lacks a little bit of, but he is the sort of guy that you could see just one team having to fall in love with. Um, and, and, and that could be very it. difficult to get down I mean, it's all well and good saying that he can't see over the line but he can see over the line and he rolls a little bit to his right or left and it's very difficult to catch him because he's so ludicrously fast the flip side to Haskins I suppose is that he played six games this season against defences that ranked in the top 25 through 20 touchdowns only two picks an average of 331 passing yards per game and one or six of them I mean that that in itself is impressive and you know we're not trying to talk him down for talking him down's sake I think it's just fair to highlight that the are yeah, some issues that it's still he's the first overall pick guy right. so I mean we're, we're judging him based upon the standard of his draft position and, and that's that's the way it is I would have you know it, it doesn't always work out I'm convinced and frankly still I'm convinced that there's a reclamation project there somewhere that Jameis Winston would be a great NFL quarterback I mean outside of the off the field stuff but on field certainly I was and it's not worked out so far but I can see you know, in the same way when Blaine Gabbard came out, you could see obvious red flags. I can see that as a as an obvious red flag with Haskins. And can he overcome it? Of course he can. But there are some worrying signs there as well. The average score in these 38 games was 34-18. 22 games decided by double digits and 14 with a margin of 20-plus. It's not a particularly good look. Um, but we still have the salvation to come. Monday night... Alabama against Clemson, which we will discuss shortly on the next podcast. Um, just quickly before we get to that, excited. They've, they've, they've essentially played for the national title three of the last four years. It's going to be a hell of a game, isn't it? I, I absolutely can't wait. And I can't wait to, to, to chat about it in the next pod as well. I think it's going to be amazing. I'm going to say one more game of bowl season because we mentioned it a whole lot preceding it. I'm not going to reveal anything about it. It was 
one of the best two or three games I watched Bull season and we expected it to be Washington State Ohio State lived up to the height. Iowa State yeah yeah, I, I was there. Sorry, was a very good game. Was a very good game. Matt, thanks as always. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Uh, we shall be back with the college national championship preview podcast very shortly. It should be a cracker. Don't forget, listen to uh, watch all the games uh, on demand on ESPN Player, and obviously the national championship game Monday night, one a.m. 1am Tuesday morning that you know however you want to play it whether it's Monday night Tuesday morning whatever it's in reality it's Tuesday morning but really it's Monday night because you won't go to bed on ESPN player do and not, all the build up I love I the build up the national do game. not miss it Chris Fowler Kirk Herbstreet Reese Davis Desmond Howard Lee Corso Maria Taylor should be an absolute cracker should be a great game Tonga Vailoa against Trevor Lawrence arguably the 2020 and 2021 first overall picks in the NFL draft. It's good. These two are going to be playing against each other in games like this for the next two or three seasons. Should be an absolute doozy. Thanks for listening. Catch you soon. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.